As I said, our topic for this evening is teach your sons diligently. Of course, when we talk about the Christian mind and the, the skill of thinking biblically, this is not something that we strive for merely for ourselves. This is something that we are tasked with in order to pass on to the next generation. And fathers have a very, very important role in passing on to the next generation the skill and the understanding of thinking rightly, thinking Christianly in this world. Now, to set the tone for tonight, I want to look for a few moments back to the 19th century to look at ideas and their consequences, particularly as it relates to the family, to fatherhood, and to children. In 1884, the socialist revolutionary Frederick Engels published a book entitled The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. He operated according to critical theory, according to the philosophical system that he and his friend, Karl Marx, who had died just before uh, the publication of this book, he operated according to that mindset of critical theory, that Marxist ideology. And critical theory led him to his attack on the family. Engels loathed the concept of monogamous marriage in particular. He himself advocated for free love and open relationships devoid of the exclusivity and hierarchy assumed by monogamous marriage. He believed that marriage, and monogamous marriage in particular, was a product of evolution. Remember, he's an atheist. And he believed that monogamous marriage was the invention of oppressive men as they sought to protect their property and pass it on to those whom they chose to pass it on to, namely their children through this process called inheritance. He did not believe that property really belonged to any individual and therefore inheritance to him was loathsome and so was marriage and the idea of passing on wealth from generation to generation. Engels likened the husband in these monogamous marriages to a an exploiting capitalist, and the wife, he likened it to the exploited worker. She was the child bearer, and then because of the traditional family understanding, she would then be responsible for staying at home and raising the children, and of course, that was considered to be low, and not realizing the full potential of the woman within larger society. Monogamy, therefore, was considered to be society's open and unconcealed form of slavery. It was the means to prevent women from true freedom and equality. As a result, Engels, as the other Marxists did as well, Engels called for the abolition of the family, women needed to be liberated from the responsibilities of child-rearing and of keeping the home. 
Obviously, you still needed children. You still needed to populate the human race. So that was still necessary. But Engels believed that children could be simply produced by open relationships, free love, and then the responsibility of child-rearing, of socializing and educating children, would be the duty of society. He advocated that the concept of legitimate children, those born to, were within a monogamous marriage, that whole concept of legitimate children had to be abandoned. Now, this is keeping with all Marxist revolutionaries. This is how they viewed the family. This is how they viewed children and parenting. And these ideas have consequences. And the, one of the most stark consequences of these, idea came, these ideas came in the 1917 revolution in Russia. And in that revolution came a, a whole different way of looking at society as the Bolsheviks in Russia ushered in the, this great socialist experiment. And one of the more extreme proponents of that socialist Marxist agenda as it related to children and to raising children was a lady by the name of Zlata Ianovna Lelina. And in a 1918 conference on education held in, in Petrograd, which is modern-day St. Petersburg, she stated these words, quote, we must exempt children from the pernicious influence of the family. We have to take account of every child. We candidly say we must nationalize them. From the first days of their lives, they will be under the beneficial influence of communistic kindergartens and schools. Here they shall assume the ABCs of communism. Here they will grow as real communists. Our practical problem then is to compel mothers to hand over their children to the Soviet government. Now this may sound like a far off idea, but it really is much closer to home than perhaps many realize. In fact, as you look at that picture of Zlata Ianovna Lelina, she looks just like the president of the teachers' union. In fact, that is the ideology that is very prevalent in teachers' unions and, and academic organizations for educators and, and so on across now this country. An example of this is a, an editorial that appeared in the Washington Post dated October the 21st of last year, 2021. The headline to that editorial was this, parents claim that they have a right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. That was the headline, and the article went on to explain how incompetent parents are in understanding the real needs of their children, and that teachers and teachers' unions and school boards understand these things and have the child's best interests in mind far more than parents. Well, in response to that op-ed in the Washington Post, Randy 
Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, tweeted out this response, great peace. Great peace, in other words, full endorsement. Now this lady, Randy Weingarten, is the president of the largest teachers union in the United States. And she made it very clear that parents did not know what their children needed most. School boards, teachers unions, teachers themselves cared for and could understand students' needs far better. This is Marxist ideology. Ideas have consequences. And this effort to remove children from the influence of the home, and particularly from fathers, is now in full force here in the West. It's one thing that mothers are involved, but the public enemy number one of teachers' unions and school boards is the dad. Now, just to give you an idea of how the, the education system now is working, and we've seen this develop in particular intensity over the last several years, I want to show you some examples of the kind of curriculum that is being promoted in, in schools today. Because undoubtedly, you will, you will connect, you will hear from other Christians who will say that this is all just a big conspiracy theory. That this is just alarmism. You're exaggerating the state of things. Well, here is actual proof. I want to give you some examples from across the country in the state of Connecticut from the West Hartford School Division. In 2021, they came out with a curriculum for children in what they call mentor texts that they are now requiring in the classroom and not allowing parents to opt their children out of these reading times. This is one mentor text given to kindergarten students. It's called Introducing Teddy, and it is described by the curriculum this way. Errol and his Teddy, Thomas, are best friends who do everything together, whether it's riding a bike, playing in the treehouse, having a tea party, or all of the above. Every day holds something fun to do. One sunny day, Errol finds that Thomas is sad, even when they are playing at their, in their favorite ways. Errol can't figure out why until Thomas finally tells Errol what the teddy has been afraid to say. In my heart, I've always known that I'm a girl teddy, not a boy teddy. I wish my name was Tilly, not Thomas. And Errol says, I don't care if you're a girl teddy or a boy teddy. What matters is that you're my friend. In another text for first graders called Jacob's New Dress, the book is described this way. Jacob loves playing dress-up when he can be anything he wants to be. Some kids at school say he can't wear girl clothes, but Jacob wants to wear a dress to school. Can he convince his parents to let him wear what he wants? A fourth-grade mentor text at this school division is entitled, When... Aiden became a brother, and it's described in their own words this way. When Aiden was born, everyone thought he was a girl. His parents gave him a pretty name, his room looked like a girl's room, and he wore clothes that other girls liked wearing. 
after he realized that he was a trans boy, Aiden and his parents fixed the parts of his life that didn't fit anymore, and he settled happily into his new life. Then mom and dad announce that they're going to have another baby, and Aiden wants to do everything he can to make things right for his new sibling from the very beginning, from choosing the perfect name to creating a beautiful room to picking out the cutest onesie. But what does making things right actually mean? Now, these are texts that are now becoming standardized and aimed not at ninth graders, but at kindergarten students, five-year-olds. Now, it used to be that discussions about sexuality, especially to five-year-olds, was considered grooming. And in our culture, for the longest time, any form of grooming was considered criminal. Now, a vestige of that remains. It is criminal if you're a male and you seek to talk about sexual things to a girl who's in kindergarten. But today, grooming in certain ways is not only permissible, but it's advocated. If you want to groom children toward homosexual practices... If you want to talk about sexuality, girl on girl, boy on boy, then that is not only acceptable, but it is to be celebrated. And that is what is happening today across the country in classes of all ages as discussions now are, talking, uh, are focused on queer-affirming, trans-affirming, homosexual-affirming, experimentation with pronouns, dancing before various sexual flags, teachers dressing in drag, and the issue goes on. And meanwhile, even some Christians will say, don't be alarmist. This isn't happening. Don't believe what you see. Everything is fine. It's not fine. Look at what they're doing to the children. You even look at Disney, which up until recently tried to stay out of some of these culture wars for a financial reason, but because of their woke leadership could no longer resist, and so recently came out and said in all of their children's programming now, they will seek an aggressive policy of advocating for these sexual messages to children. This is not just alarmism. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is really happening. And I want to read to you uh, some interaction that I had with one of the members of our church. I will keep the identity uh, obscured. I'll use a different name for her. I'll call her Jennifer. She is a daycare provider, works at a daycare center, and has for the past five years. And something has happened to her recently which only illustrates how serious this new agenda is. For the past five years, Jennifer has worked as a care provider for young children less than three years of age at a major daycare center in the Los Angeles area. Although she was required to attend diversity training, up until 
this past year, she had not been pressured to celebrate the LGBTQ agenda. She would always conveniently take her her vacation time during the month of June, which is, as you know, Gay Pride Month. But all of this changed for her just recently. One day as she was helping out in the classroom with two-year-olds, she noticed that a set of books had been set aside for reading time to these two-year-olds. Five out of the 12 books explicitly affirmed LGBTQ themes. Now, of course, the children aren't going to understand the terminology, but it's all in the pictures of those books. She asked the other teacher quietly if those books could be set aside and and different books that they had read before, whether those books could be read instead. The teacher reluctantly agreed, but within the hour, Jennifer was summoned to the director's office and an order was given to her, if you cannot celebrate with us, then this place is not a place where you can work. A few moments later, she was asked to leave the premises and was placed on administrative leave depending a formal investigation into her so-called discrimination. Because she refused then to undergo training or retraining, re-education, and refused to openly affirm the LGBTQ position, she has wonderfully maintained her witness. A formal disciplinary report has been filed in the process of having her fired. Even though she has complied with the investigation and has given her side of the account in careful detail, none of her details were included in the disciplinary report. They refused to take her aside or to record anything that she said in her defense for her sake. They completely disregarded her and even invented accusations of being aggressive, confrontational, and discriminatory in front of these two-year-olds. She is waiting a final outcome. But that's what's happening, not even just in kindergartens, but in daycare centers with two-year-olds. Now, her statement to me at the end of her email was so very encouraging, and this is something to learn from because if you have anything to do with the public school system, you're going to find yourself in this very soon if you are not already there. But she said this, If I would not have had faith in the sovereignty of God, I would wonder why this happened during such a difficult time in my life. But when I felt like I was being pushed off a cliff and about to crash, I experienced that I landed in the hands of a strong and almighty God. I say this to emphasize the vast importance for us as men to be involved in the lives of our children. In past generations, some of that involvement has been somewhat mitigated by an implicit trust in those institutions of society like schools where you could believe that they generally get it right and they'd respect you and your wishes as a parent and 
And they would honor your request if you asked for the children not to be in certain classes. And they would openly inform you ahead of time of, of curriculum and textbooks for required reading. But those days are gone. Those days are gone. And when we talk about the Christian mind and the sanctity of the Christian mind, it is so very important that we understand it also with respect to our children and protecting their precious minds against the horrible onslaught that is growing from Satan as he works through these agendas. Now, to, to look at this topic, I want to turn our attention to an important text in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and I will read from verse 1 to the end of verse 4, but our attention will be drawn to verse 4. This is part of the Apostle Paul's household instructions that he begins in chapter 5, verse 22, and continues on until chapter 6, verse 9, as he deals with different elements in the home. But here is where he begins talking about children. He says this in 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, even at first glance, you can see that this text is an exhortation to fathers that deals with the mind. There are several words, as we are going to see, that deal explicitly with the issue of training, of education, and the use of the mind. So let's dig down deep into this text. Let's strengthen ourselves in this for greater resolve to meet the challenge that we face outside of these walls. Let's look first at the target audience. Whom is Paul addressing with this injunction in verse 4. Who is he addressing? This is very important. He, he begins with this direct address. He calls to attention fathers. Fathers. The, the word there is pateres in the plural. It comes from pater, from which we get patriarch or paternal. Paternal meaning everything related to the father. But some have suggested that that term actually could be translated more generally as parents. In fact, there are some translations when they come to chapter 6 verse 4 that will actually translate it not as fathers but as parents. There is a little bit of basis for this if we go back to or if we go to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 we read that Moses was hidden for three months by his pateres, parents, plural. Not fathers, plural, parents. And so the term in usage at times did include the mother. And so conceptually it is possible to understand here in Ephesians 6 verse 4 that Paul is potentially addressing both parents, the mother as well as the father. But the, the reason why we don't take that view is this. 
If we look in the preceding context, particularly at verse 1, we see the word parents there used. Notice the text. Paul writes, children, obey your parents. There the term is used. But in the original Greek, it's not peteres. It's a different term, referring to both the mother and the father. So in light of that, it, it forces us to take this, this, this term in, in chapter 6, verse 4, as referring exclusively to fathers, to the fathers of the children. Paul here, we must understand, is addressing the fathers as the heads of families. He has already referred to the husband as the head. If we go back to, to verse uh, chapter 5, verse 23, says the husband is the head of the wife. Paul is continuing on that idea, but now describing or focusing on the relationship of the husband as a father and as the head of his family. The father is the center of authority in the home. And I know that is very politically incorrect, but that is just what Scripture teaches. You can't even do gymnastics to avoid this. It's what the Bible clearly teaches. The father is the center of authority in his home. But as the center of authority, he has the responsibility to ensure that the children receive the proper intellectual, moral, and spiritual upbringing. It is the father's ultimate responsibility. Now, this is not to deny the role that the mother plays. You can look at a text like Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, where Paul tells the older women there on the island of Crete that they were to instruct the young women to love their husbands and to love their children and to be busy at home. Obviously, the mothers have an integral role in the nurturing of children. But in this context, Paul explicitly identifies the father as having the primary responsibility for the nurturing of his children. His responsibility is ultimate. He will give an answer for what has happened in the home. And this is, by the way, a key concept of biblical masculinity. It's responsibility. Now, there's all kinds of ways that biblical masculinity has been defined these days. A lot of it is cringeworthy. You know, to be masculine means you drink liquor and cuss. I mean, that's cringeworthy. It has nothing to do with Scripture whatsoever. Uh, many of those definitions of biblical masculinity are simple knee-jerk reactions to the caricatures of feminism. And that's not how we are to define biblical masculinity. We're to define biblical masculinity according to the Bible. And when we look at Scripture's overall teaching about biblical masculinity, it really comes down to, to one key term. It's the term responsibility. Responsibility. In fact, just this past Tuesday, Pastor John preached in, a, in our seminary chapel, and he made a statement that was so good. He said this, masculinity is the responsibility to reduce evil and produce good. 
Look at all of scripture and see how men are to be involved in different roles and responsibilities in the home, in the church, in the world. And it all comes down to this, to reducing the impact of evil and the threat of evil and producing good, ensuring that good flourishes. Well, take that concept and apply it to your role as a father. You have the greatest responsibility for the nurturing of your children in your home. And so Paul begins by identifying this target audience. He says, fathers. He says, I'm looking at you. I'm addressing this to you. Listen up. Now what does he say? Let's look at the solemn warning. He begins, as he often does, with the negative of what not to do. And we find that in the first half of verse 4. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman families of the day, fathers were known for severity, extreme severity. There was the law of the land, which was known as patria potestas, which meant the power of the father. And patria potestas gave the father absolute rights over his children. And, And of course, that led to many abuses and even to the murder of children. That fathers could murder their own children and not face any repercussions from the law. That was the law of the land. That would have been familiar even to the residents of Ephesus, even to those Christians. They would have been familiar with that, that right to do whatever the father wanted to his children. But notice what Paul does. He prevents such unbridled use of authority. He begins here, he begins with this important solemn warning, this corrective, and he says this, do not provoke. Do not provoke. Now, what does the verb provoke mean? It it means to make angry. It means to irritate, to agitate. It means to poke at. It, It really means to tempt someone to respond with anger. And Paul says, first and foremost, that as he addresses the fathers and their responsibility, he says this, you must not do this. You must not be a source of temptation. You must not use unwholesome means in your upbringing of children. One commentator describes what Paul has in mind here this way. He says, quote, this involves avoiding attitudes, words, and actions which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment, and thus rules out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and and sensibilities. End quote. That's a great summary. That's what it means to provoke a child to anger, to, to engage in these things. This kind of severe discipline, the, the, the constant preaching of the law without any reference to grace, or even just 50-50, or just constant reviling, constant criticism, Constant condemnation. 
the humiliation of children in front of each other, in front of the mother, in front of the neighbors, in front of the church, in front of the school. All these things are prohibited by Paul's very clear and solemn warning, you shall not exasperate your children. You shall not tempt them to anger. Let's now look at the explicit command. We, we saw the target audience. We saw the solemn warning. Now let's look at the positive. In response to the, the, the warning that he gives, that which fathers are not to do, now he turns to the positive, And he starts with a very strong contrasting conjunction. But now we see what you're supposed to do. And he has a very simple statement. He says, but bring them up. But bring them up. Now, in the English, that verb may not communicate much. It's quite a a neutral, empty term. Bring them up. Well, what, what does that mean? But that's not the case in the original. The verb that Paul uses here to bring up, in a literal sense, it means to provide food or to nourish. Now, the same verb is used back in chapter 5. It's used back in chapter 5, verse 29, in a literal sense, to describe what any man does for his own body. Now, in that context, in chapter 5, verse 29, Paul is describing or or giving instructions to husbands as it relates to wives. And in the midst of that, he makes this comment about how men take care of their bodies. He says this in verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Well, there you have the verb to nourish. And Paul says, look, let's let's get down to to the brass tacks here. Every one of us seeks to nourish our own bodies. And some of us do that a little bit more than others. But we all love to do it. We all are good at it. And and we all live for it. And Paul says that's just what happens. And that idea is, is, the idea of nourishing your body is, is filled with this idea of concern and affection. We want to live healthily. We, we want to, to experience things And we love our desires, and so we eat. We nourish ourselves. Now, Paul takes that same verb, and he uses it in a figurative sense here to describe what the fathers are to do with their children. And that same notion of concern and affection is inherent in Paul's figurative use of the term here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He says to fathers, nourish your children. And he's not speaking of that merely in terms of making sure that they have food on the table. The idea is figurative. Nourish them. Show great concern and affection for them by ensuring that they are supplied for intellectually and morally and spiritually. Nourish them. Have affection for them. Be concerned for them. Provide for them what they need. Now that word for nourishment, we often just relegate to the wife, to the mother, right? Mothers are so good at nourishing. 
But notice that Paul is not addressing the wife. He's not addressing the mother. He's addressing the father. And he says this not in terms of a one-time activity. You know that it's not just about feeding your children once. It's a whole life. It's about raising them in this way from the moment they're born until they are adults and able to live on their own and do this faithfully for themselves. This is a lifelong commitment. Now, how do we do that? In what environment? And Paul gets to that in the next point. Point four, the necessary environment. Notice the environment that Paul describes as essential for this kind of nourishment. It doesn't just happen in any environment. It doesn't just take place in a vacuum. There, there has to be an environment, a context, in which this kind of nourishment can take place. Notice what he says in verse 6 in the second half. He says it takes place in this environment, in the discipline and instruction. In discipline and instruction. This is the sphere in which nourishment takes place. And these two terms that Paul uses here are are very similar. They're synonyms. So it's very difficult to distinguish them. And and in fact, if you just look at different translations, they'll, they'll do this all differently because they're so close to each other. The NASB and the ESV and the LSB translated as discipline and instruction. If you have a KJV, a King James Version, it's nurture and admonition. The the New King James Version has it as training and admonition. The NIV or the Christian Standard Bible has it as training and instruction. Well, probably the best way to look at these two terms is the way that it's rendered in the New King James Version. I think it's, it's most accurately rendered in the New King James, which has it as training and admonition. Training and admonition. And that means this, that the first term that Paul uses here, which is translated as discipline in the NASB, refers to training or education in general. It's a slightly broader term, and it doesn't really have an emphasis whether it's negative in orientation or positive. It's, it's just about training. But the second term has more to do with correction. And and so, like I said, the best way to see these terms are as follows. Paul is saying that the environment that's here, the necessary environment, is one of training and admonition. Let's look quickly at what that means with respect to each one of these. First of all, the term discipline, or what we'll say is training. It's the word paideia, from which we get pediatrics. And that term was used to describe the act of providing guidance for children in the area of responsible living. This term that's used here in in Ephesians 6 verse 4. The act of providing guidance for responsible living. That's training. That's education at its best. In fact, we see the verb form of this term used in Acts 7, verse 22, and, and again in Acts 22, verse 3, to describe the education of Moses in Egypt and the education of Paul at the feet of Gamaliel. The, the, the verb form is used there. And it parallels, if we were to go back to the book of Proverbs, this term here, this first one of the two, parallels the term 
instruction that we see so often in the book of Proverbs. Instruction for godliness. Instruction for success. Instruction for faithfulness. Instruction for making wise decisions. That idea that's used there in the book of Proverbs. So this discipline has to do with training. And fathers are commanded by Paul to nurture their children by providing this environment, an environment of training, an environment of education. Secondly, the environment has to be made up of instruction in the NASB. It's an interesting term that's used here. As I said, it's a more specific one, and it's a little bit more negative in nature than the first one, which was more general. This one comes from a a verb which is made up of two words, nous, which means mind, and tithemi, which means to set or to place. So literally, this word has the idea of to put something in one's mind. That's the idea of this second term, to put something in someone's mind. But as we look at its usage... And there are quite a few examples of this in the New Testament. We find it frequently in those contexts of correction. One scholar puts it this way in terms of defining this term. He says it's the well-intentioned seriousness with which one would influence the mind and disposition of another. In this case, a child. By advice, admonition. Warning, putting right according to the circumstances. Paul uses this term in 1 Corinthians to refer to his admonishment of those believers in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, he says this, I do not write these things to shame you. I'm not writing this to exasperate you. I'm not writing this to provoke you to anger, Paul says. But I'm writing this to admonish you to correct you as my beloved children. Well, that idea is what Paul says is a necessary ingredient in the environment of the home. And as fathers, it is our duty to create this environment for the nurturing to take place. On the one hand, it must include general training. On the other hand, it must also include that more painful aspect of correction and 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 admonishment of pointing out error and showing the right way to do things. That, Paul says, is on the shoulders of the father to ensure is happening for his child. Finally, you have in this text at the very end a final phrase which gives us the transcendent standard. At the very end of verse 4, there's a little phrase that we dare not miss. It's the little phrase of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction or in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, why is that important? That phrase, it modifies both training and admonition. And it indicates that these things, the training and the admonition, come from the Lord They have been commissioned by the Lord. That's where they find their origin. The Lord is the one who has given the Father these duties. He is the one who has tasked 
the fathers with these things. And so as Paul wraps up this instruction, he wants the fathers to understand that this is the transcendent standard. He is the one who is watching. He is the one who has given this ministry. He is the one who is concerned for those little children and has created the institution of fatherhood to ensure that this takes place on the, on, on the, on the, for the sake of those children. One writer says this, the training and admonition come from the Lord or are prescribed by the Lord through fathers. The fathers are the Lord's agents and therefore raise their children according to his mandates. And this means, men, that raising children cannot be father-centered. Raising children, nurturing children cannot be father-centered where you look at yourself as the origin of these things. The transcendent standard. No. Moreover, this means that you cannot look at raising children as being child-centered. Where the child is the one who makes the weather at home. Where the child is the one around whom the whole home rotates. No. The standard here is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so parenting must be, and fatherhood in particular, must be Christ-centered, recognizing that all of this is done from Christ, through Christ, for Christ, and by Christ. It is to be neither neutral, this child-raising, nor is it to be this smorgasbord of ideas. No, everything must be brought under the lordship of Christ as those children are raised in that training and admonition. It must be truly Christian. Your fathering must be truly Christian. The most important education that is provided to your children must be truly Christian, as one commentator said, compatible with loyalty to Jesus Christ. And this is what makes the scene out there in schools today, so very dangerous. There is an explicit public bias against what Paul has just described in chapter 6, verse 4. One commentator says this, Fathers have the ultimate responsibility of raising their children in such a way that they will be trained in understanding the essence of the Christian faith and that they will be instructed and admonished to live this out. That is our job as fathers. Now as we wrap this up and look at how to apply this, I want to leave you with five P's. Five P's. You got four of them in your notes. And by the way, some of the notes are not quite finished yet. The study questions aren't there. They're going to be posted online. And I have to add the fifth P. I ran out of time. It'll be added. But I'll give you the five P's in the presentation here. The first P is this. Prioritize your children. Prioritize your children. Biblical masculinity, biblical manhood, biblical fatherhood is about taking responsibility. Remember, this command that is given is about affection and concern. To, to nurture or to raise them up is, is about this affection. And you have to exhibit this. This has to arise out of your very heart. And this means taking responsibility for this 
most important job. You as a father cannot plead ignorance. You, you cannot plead ignorance with respect to your own responsibilities and duties as a father. You, you cannot plead ignorance with respect to the needs of the child. And you certainly cannot plead ignorance with respect to what is going on out there today in the world. And if you have children in the public school system, or any other kind of school for that matter, it is not your job simply to say, well, somebody else will take care of them. No, you have to ensure this. You have to make it a priority by saying, this is important to me. You've got to take time off work. You've got to drive to the school. You've got you to line up the interview. You have to take the priority. Fatherhood is not a responsibility that can be delegated, that can be deferred or diminished. And the default position of your fathering cannot just be whatever is most convenient. A lot rides on this. You look to Proverbs. Proverbs 17 verse 21 explains what happens when fathers haven't made this a priority or when things have gone awry. Solomon says, he who sires a fool does so to his sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. Understand this, the last thing you want to hear as a father is to hear from your children, why did you let me do that? Why didn't you care about that? Why didn't you inquire? On the other hand, the joy is also there. That there is fruit to this effort. There is reward. Proverbs also says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. And he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Remember those promises. And even though salvation is of the Lord, we must recognize that there is a, that there is a correlation. And if we're really wanting to rejoice in our old age of our children... At that time, it means we have to put that into concrete action today. Second P, preserve your children. Preserve your children, specifically against temptation. And we see this in Paul's command, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers cannot be guilty of, of two devastating errors. One of them is just ignoring the children and letting them rule the home. But the other is antagonizing the children. Tempting the children, lording it over the children. Fathers must preserve their children against the temptations that they can so easily feel toward anger toward their parents. And this means you must make sure you don't expose your, your children to temptation through graceless and excessive discipline, through reviling speech, and so on. It's, it's all a very serious sin. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6, that if you cause these little ones to sin, if you are a source of temptation to these little ones, it will be better for you to have a heavy millstone, a millstone that would be turned by a donkey, to have it put around your neck and to be cast into the depth of the sea. So examine your parenting. And this is very convicting. Examine your parenting and ask yourself the question, am I antagonizing my children? Do I have gracelessness? 
that they never see any sacrifice from me? Or, or can I really say that they see sacrifice from me day after day after day? Even they might not acknowledge it. But I'm the most sacrificial servant in the home. Third P. Protect your children. A father is not called upon to be his child's best friend just to affirm everything the child wants or feels, dreams of, and so on. Now that is largely how the school systems are approaching this. Whatever a child thinks today, just let the child have it. That is missing the point of fatherhood, which is to admonish. Your child will, from the earliest days, have stupid ideas because they come from the same sinful heart that we once had. A heart that will be drawn to, the, to perverse things. And it is not your job just to be a friend in that situation and affirm it all. There will be the need to, to admonish. But, but you also need to recognize that as your job as a father, you have a responsibility to protect and shield that child from all kinds of harm. That is a primary responsibility today. And it is so very important in light of what we're seeing around us. The, the snares of the devil and, and all those textbooks. The, the wiles of the world and all that internet access and computers and smartphones and all those things. And, and even the child's own sinful propensity. It is our job to protect them from that. And if fathers will not, the groomers step in. We must be active. And inattentive fathers who are not protectors sacrifice their children on the altar of convenience and uninformed ones, naive to the world, sacrifice their children on the altar of chance. It may work out. It may, it may not. I don't know. Just let it happen. It's not the approach to take. Often you'll hear it said that parents will use their children as, quote, missionaries. Those same children are, or those same parents are not active in evangelism themselves, but they will pat themselves on the back and say, well, I'm going to send my children to the public school where I know they're teaching all of this garbage, and they will be our family's missionaries. Men, let me tell you, that is the stupidest idea you can use with respect to your children. You be the missionary. You go evangelize your neighborhood. Don't put that on the shoulders of those young children. You protect them. You protect them. Yes, overprotection is a very relevant danger. There are fathers who are way overprotective. And they must be admonished. They're provoking their children to anger. But more often than not, the, the more common problem is the failure to protect. And let me just say this, men. If you have your kids in any school, and you go to that school, and you ask the teacher or the principal, what is the curriculum? What are you teaching my child? And the teacher says to you, I'm not going to tell you that. You have one option. Pull the child out immediately. Say, that's it. It's over. And then you do what it takes to provide that child the education it needs. But understand this. There are many parents today who are following the silly idea that if the teachers will not tell them what they're teaching, they'll just believe the best and say, well, it'll just work out in the end. 
Listen, you will live to regret that deeply. If those teachers will not tell you what they are teaching, pull your children out. Fourth, prepare your children. It is the father's responsibility to ensure that his children are trained in the right mindset and worldview. As, as Paul said, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It must be Christ-centered. Now, it must begin with your own example. You must model for your children around the kitchen table, working in the garage or backyard, as you're driving to the grocery store, you must model to your children what it means to think biblically. They need to see it in action. You don't even need to explain all the different steps. You just need to apply all that we've studied over this last year. Show it in motion. Children need to see that. But don't just leave it at the modeling part of it. There must also be training. Take these concepts of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, of taking every thought captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Take these concepts and and the exercise of discernment and explain to your children how they walk through this. Even at their age, you have a responsibility to prepare them, to train them to think biblically. Don't just say that that's going to be the job of the pastor, the youth leader. That's your job. And of course, it involves correction as well as affirmation. And what does this training include? It includes all the foundations of life. We won't go through this now, but if you remember from last year, I did a three-part series on parenting from the book of Proverbs. I'd encourage you to go through this, but very quickly here, what does Solomon teach his son? What are the categories And you could summarize them these ways. And these are foundational categories. And trust me, these are the very things that the kindergarten teachers are seeking to teach your children today, but contrary to Scripture. Number one, how to relate to women. In other words, sexuality. Sexuality. Solomon said, it's my job to teach you about that. That's your job. Number two, how to relate to the world. How to relate to the world. In other words, how to understand what is going on, why things are the way they are. How to relate to the world. Number three, how to relate to work. Certainly, that's being taught in the schools today, how not to work. Number four, how to relate to wealth. These are all fundamental categories. And Solomon said, this is what I want to pass on to you, my son. Those are the categories we as fathers must operate within as well. The fifth P, point your children. Ultimately, Fathers must recognize that their ultimate duty is not to point to themselves, but to point to the one true Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate reason for being a father. It's to live our days pointing our children to the Father who can be much more, far more, infinitely more as a father than we could ever be. And so integral to our training is is informing our children that we don't have all the answers. In fact, we're not the source of all of this. We're not the origin. We ourselves are not the answer. But we, just like them, need a savior. 
that we just like them struggle with a sinful heart. We were born ourselves into sin, just as they are. And we too needed redemption. We needed the cross of Christ. We needed the forgiveness of our sins because we could never live up to the standard. But every day of our lives, every day, we, we rebelled. We were disobedient. We lived in the thick of that. And it was only because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that, that we have life and hope and faith. And that's our job as parents to communicate that, as fathers in particular, and to keep telling our children, listen, I will do my best by the grace of God to be the father you deserve, but understand this, I'm going to fall short many times, and I'm going to fail you, but I want to tell you something. I'm not your last resort. I'll do everything I can to point you to the one who is that perfect father who is always there and will meet every one of your true needs. And he is the one to whom you must look. And put all your faith in him and his promises. That is our ultimate privilege and duty as fathers. Let's pray that the Lord make this an increasing reality in our own fathering. Again, Father, we do come before you thankful for that awesome privilege of calling you Abba, our Father. And that title indicates so much. It, it, it indicates that you are the one with the provision. We are the ones with the need. And you and your love and considerateness for us sent your son, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself all of our transgressions upon that cross once and for all so that we might have his righteousness and by that adoption as sons and to enjoy all the privileges that come now as your children. And one of those great privileges is being able to enter the throne room of grace to find help in the time of need. And when we think of fathering, boy, we think of our needs. We think of our failures. We think of how short we fall in representing you. We pray for two things, Father. We pray that you would enable us to grow for your glory's sake and for the good of our children in our ability to, in an analogous way, show all these things that you've given to us that we could, in, a, in, in an analogous way, be that in our own families to our children. Help us in that. But we pray more than that even, that you would use us to help our children to realize the great loving Father that you are, that you have the solutions to their problems, that you are the one who brings the purest joy and satisfaction to life. Use us as messengers of that, use us as instruments of that wonderful gospel 
And we pray for our sister who's going through this particular challenge at her work. We thank you for her example of faith and trust, her witness. And we pray that you would give us courage as well in this dark world. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen.